Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. Reading Matthew 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to live to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet to be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be, and be thrown into the fire of hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you, that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go, go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine sheep that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. If your brother or sister sins, Go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But but they will not listen. Take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth will be lost in heaven. Again, truly I tell you, that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother and sister? who sins against me, up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him ten thousand bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and he and his wife and his children, that all and all that he had be sold, sold to repay the debt. At, the servant, at this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But then the servant went, back, went out, found one of his fellow servants, who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. 
pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown in prison on, until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all your debt to be of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother and sister from your heart. Thank you, boys. They had told me they were going to alternate every other word the whole time, and I was a little nervous, but, uh, but uh, they did great. Have you ever wondered about uh, what God wants? Uh, maybe, maybe you had a big decision to make, and, and you were weighing all of the options, and you couldn't come to a decision, and at some point along the way, you stopped and wondered, like, what, what does God want? What does God want me to, to do with this situation? Maybe it was a difficult season of life and you just could not make sense of what was going on and where God was in the midst of the struggle. And at some point along the way, you, you thought to yourself, what, what does God want? Like, is there, some, is there some secret moral, some silver lining to this story that I'm supposed to take away that I just haven't found yet that God wants me to see? What, what, is, what is going on? I, I wanted some help on how to answer that question, so I reached out to a few of our parents this week uh, and told them to ask their kids this question to see what, what our kids might come up with. And I'll be totally honest, up front, I was hoping to get some pretty funny responses. Um, I, was, I was thinking, you know, if, you, if parents could blindside their kids with this and, and not give them any time to think about it, maybe we would get some things uh, pretty humorous. But instead, I got a lot of really good, well-thought-out uh, responses. And so credit to our parents, credit to Isaac, credit to our Sunday school teachers uh, for, for what they've taught uh, so many of the kids here around the church. So these are all anonymous. I've, I've organized them roughly in order of age, roughly youngest to oldest, so maybe you can guess at who wrote what, but um, here's, here's what I got back. God wants goodness, helpful, loveness. I'm not totally sure loveness is a word, but anyway, it, you, you get it. And to make people happy or laugh by being silly. To share, God wants us to share your toys with friends. God wants no disobeying. He wants freedom. He wants our earth clean and be kind to everyone. God wants world peace. God wants to bless people. Kind words. God wants to be united with us in heaven for, for the world to be without sin and division, for the devil to be gone. God wants us to love him. He wants everyone to accept him, to be baptized and see us in heaven. He wants you to be in heaven with him. God wants for us to love him. God wants us to make disciples. God wants us to follow the Ten Commandments. Uh, God wants us to commit to him early in life and not wait till we are older and settle down. God wants us. He wants us to be with him. And really, my main takeaway from this size is that there are kids in our youth group who would be better at my job than I am. So I, you probably saw that as well. 
Now, I don't have any kind of secret map or answer key for, for what the answer to that question is for any and all situations. Uh, but I do think that the passage we're going to be looking at this morning uh, gives us a sort of overarching answer to the question of what God wants. We've been making our way through this section of teaching from Jesus that's recorded in Matthew chapter 18, and we've seen already that the focus of this section of teaching is on how we live as a Jesus people. How do we live as a group of people who are following Jesus together? And so far in this chapter, we've seen a pretty big focus on, I think, what you could call our side of the equation, so to speak. In the first week of this series, we saw how Jesus has a different approach to greatness than we tend to have. That to enter into Jesus' kingdom, he calls us to become like little children. Uh, to humble ourselves before him and take a posture of service towards those around us. Last week, we saw the concern that Jesus has for his people, especially when it comes to his people being led astray by sin. Jesus takes sin seriously, and because of that, he says some pretty serious things in this chapter about the steps that we should take to root sin out of our lives. And it's a little bit of an oversimplification, I'll admit, but I think it's accurate to say that so far in this series, we've seen Jesus focusing on how we have been called to live, and today we're going to see a shift to God's concern for his people which helps us make sense of why we have been called to live as a Jesus people. We've seen in both weeks of this series so far that Jesus cares deeply for his followers and takes any threats that might lead his people away from him seriously. Jesus has used this imagery of stumbling throughout throughout this chapter. Jesus portrays people who follow him as, as little children. And if you've ever seen little children walk for any amount of time, you know how easy it is for a child to pretty easily trip or stumble or fall over. And we saw last week that, that Jesus doesn't like the fact that there are bumps in the road, that there are potholes and rocks that might cause a, a little one to walking after Jesus to stumble. Jesus does not like that there are detours on the road that, that people might take that promise to be a great shortcut, ultimately lead people farther away from him. But, but we also saw that Jesus knows that this is a reality due to the fact we live in a world that that does not function the way that it should. So in this passage we're looking at today, God's perspective is if and when someone who is following after him stumbles. Jesus shows us in this passage what God wants, especially when that stumbling occurs. If you've ever wondered what God wanted you, when life was tough, the thing God wants more than anything else, I'll just give you the answer right up front, the thing God wants is you. So this morning we're going to be looking at what Jesus has to say about that. But before we, we get into anything else about this passage, there's, there's a couple of issues I think we should spend a little bit of time on, and they're both related to verse 10, the first verse in this passage. So I'm going to read Matthew 18, 10 for us, and then we'll unpack those two issues as quickly as we can. Jesus is speaking. He says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Jesus says this thing about angels in heaven. And I want to be careful with this verse because it's, it's just one part of this passage and it would be easy to get distracted with all kinds of theories. There was belief among some people in Jesus' day that, that everyone had a, what we might call a guardian angel of some sort. Over in Acts chapter 12, we get this story where 
uh, the Apostle Peter is miraculously released from prison. After he gets released, he goes to, to a home where a, a group of Christians are gathered, and he's outside, he's knocking on the door, and it's actually kind of a funny story because he's out there knocking on the door, and they just leave him out there because they don't believe that it's actually Peter. And, and they, they think there's no way Peter got out of prison. They don't know what to do with this. They say, well, it, it, must, be, it must be his angel. Peter must have died, and, and now that's his angel outside. Now, it would be wise of us to not read too much into this, but... I think we can at least conclude, based on what we see across Scripture as a whole, and here in Matthew 18, that there are spiritual beings that have been created by God, and those beings are invested in the business of this earth, including our lives. But that is not the main point of verse 10. The main point of this verse is what Jesus has to say there in verse 10 about the access that his people have to God the Father. Uh, this is imagery of a royal court. And not just anyone can wander into the king's throne room. Or to think of a rough parallel today, you can't just walk up to the front door of the White House, knock on the door, and ask if you could pop into the Oval Office for a couple minutes. That's not, that's not how it works. So imagine what kind of access someone would have Jesus' day if they were sitting in the king's throne room continuously. Or even if it's just not a king, just think of human relationships in general. How close would you have to be to someone where you were never out of their sight? You would have to have a pretty good relationship, at least I would hope, or you're going to get sick of each other pretty quick. And the point Jesus is making there in verse 10 is that little ones, followers of Jesus, have such intimate access to the king of the universe because they always have an advocate in his presence. And for that reason, Jesus advises against despising another follower of Jesus, is how the NIV translates that, that phrase. And that word that's translated despising means looking down on someone, treating them as less than or inferior, as if they have no value. Jesus says that we're not to treat little ones in this way. And if we're tracking with how Jesus has used that term for little ones throughout this chapter, we can see that he's referring to how we deal with one another. If we truly believe the gospel... That means that we should always view one another as valuable. Because the fact that Jesus has died for us means that none of us ever have the option of looking down on someone else. Now, if, if Jesus had to die for you and had to die for someone else, you don't have any, any high ground to claim. Now, the second issue I want to tackle quickly is verse 11 of this passage. Because if you look closely at your Bible right now, uh, you might notice that there isn't a verse 11. So, What's going on here? Did, did someone decide they didn't like verse 11 and so they just cut it out of our Bibles? Well, right here uh, is an example of what New Testament scholars call textual criticism. We don't have time this morning to say everything that could be said about textual criticism. But it's important for us to know that we don't have any of the original editions of, our, of any of our books of the Bible, but, but we do have lots of copies. Just to make a quick comparison, we have roughly 200 copies of the lives of the 12 Caesars written by the Roman historian Suetonius. And Suetonius wrote in the early 2nd century. And the oldest of the copies that we have of his writings come from around the 9th century. So we have about 200 copies, and the oldest of those copies are about seven, come about six or 700 years after Suetonius was alive and was writing. We have over 5,700 copies of the New Testament in its original Greek 
not to mention copies of it that come to us in other forms, uh, quoted in other places, or are translated into other languages. And the oldest of those copies come from the early 2nd century, so just a few decades after the last books of the New Testament were written. And so, because we have all of these copies, scholars work to compare them and try to sort out what, what the original copies of our New Testament said, as best as we can tell, because while the authors of Scripture were absolutely inspired by the Holy Spirit when they were writing, the scribes that made copies of their writings, and then the scribes that made copies of the copies, and the scribes that made copies of the copies of the copies, sometimes they made mistakes. Sometimes they tried uh, to smooth out what was in the text just to make it a little easier to read. And this seems to be one of the instances where that's happened. If, you're, if you look down at your Bible, you probably don't have a verse 11 in the text, but there's probably a footnote or something like that, and you can look down at the bottom of the page, and it will probably say something like, uh, some manuscripts include here the words of Luke 19.10. Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So when scholars weigh all the evidence and compare the manuscripts based on their quality and when the copies were made, it seems like that that while scribes were making copies of the Gospel of Matthew, they, they were trying to make Matthew 18 flow a little more smoothly. And so the way they did that was to insert in the words of Jesus from Luke 19.10 here in Matthew 18. And while Jesus did say those words, he didn't say them right here. And so, verse 11 is not in most of our Bibles. And if you've tuned me out for the last few minutes, I get it, but come back because here's why it all matters. I take the time to work through all of that because... I want to emphasize the point that the Bible doesn't have anything to hide. When scholars make decisions like this, they're not trying to change what the Bible says. They're doing the best that they can to present what the authors of Scripture originally wrote. All truth is God's truth. Therefore, we want to bring it out in the open so we can be confident that we can trust in the Bibles that we read. There are some variants and things like this throughout our ancient manuscripts of the New Testament, but they are very few, and none of them pose any kind of major threat to the core beliefs of, of the faith. And if you have more questions about that or concerns, we can talk about those after church or later this week. I'd be glad to, but I think it's worth emphasizing for all of us that we can trust the Bible we read, that it is God's Word to us about who He is, about how we have been called to live as His people. And so with all that out of the way, um, let's look at this story Jesus tells about a shepherd and a bunch of sheep and what that tells us about how God views his people. Picking up in Matthew eighteen twelve, and reading down to verse 14, Jesus says, What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and, and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly, I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Remember, in this section of teaching from Jesus, we're looking at how God responds when someone stumbles or wanders away from him. Now, if you've been around church for any amount of time, you've maybe heard sermons on this parable before, and you've probably heard a lot made over, now, what's going on with the 99 that haven't wandered off? Does the shepherd, does he just completely abandon them? Does he, maybe he leaves them with other shepherds, and they take care of them while he's gone? Would a shepherd normally have done something like this, or is, is this something completely unheard of to the people that are listening to Jesus as he's speaking here? I want to be careful uh, and make sure I don't 
overstate my case or go beyond what Jesus says right here in this parable, but I think if we come to this parable mainly concerned about what's going on with the 99, we've kind of missed the point of what Jesus is saying. And I think at least in part of the time we miss the point because if you're listening to me right now, there's a pretty good chance that, that you're a part of the 99 that hasn't wandered off. Now, that doesn't mean every, anyone who's ever read this story and wondered about what's going on with the rest of the sheep is a bad person or, or it, anything like that. It just means that when we come to this parable, we should do the best that we can to focus on what Jesus is focused on as he's telling us this story. His focus is on the, con- the concern the shepherd has for the one that's wandered away. Or to use the words that Jesus uses elsewhere in this chapter, the, his focus is on how God views a little one who stumbles. So what does God do when that stumbling happens? How does God respond when, when someone has been following him, but, but they go through some kind of tragedy in life and they feel like God has let them down? How does God respond when someone gets burned by a church and they just decide to give up on the whole thing? How does God respond when someone becomes infatuated with false teaching or with a political issue and that takes the place of Jesus in their life? How does God respond when someone graduates and they go out on their own for the first time and they just decide getting up early on a Sunday morning to go to church just isn't worth it? How does God respond when someone decides they're just too busy, they got too much going on to worry about going to church anymore? Does does God just throw up his hands and give up? Does he just assume they'll be back eventually and doesn't worry about it? Does he tell them not to let the door hit them on the way out? What, how does our God respond? What Jesus says here in this parable is that the shepherd leaves the flock. That doesn't mean that the shepherd doesn't care about the other 99. It doesn't mean that he's fine with the rest of that flock being left to fend for themselves as long as he gets that one sheep back. It is a demonstration of how much God our shepherd cares for each and every one of us. For those that want off, God pursues them. God does not give up on them. He does not pursue them out of anger. He pursues them out of love. He He does not want any of his little ones to be lost, and so he goes to great lengths to make sure that those who wander away are not lost. He goes to lengths that might seem drastic to someone observing the situation from the outside, lengths that someone might look at and think, I mean, that's pretty over the top. I mean, come on, man, you still got 99 other sheep. The love of God does not operate in terms of human rationality. The love of God does not conduct a cost-benefit analysis first. The love of God pursues his people, even when they have wandered away, so that they might be made new. And when that happens, and when the shepherd finds the sheep that has wandered off, there is joy. When the shepherd finds the sheep that has wandered off, there is not anger. He does not beat the sheep. He doesn't tie a rope around the sheep and drag him back to the rest of the flock. There is only joy that the sheep that was lost has been found. That's the reaction that our God has when one of his people who has stumbled is brought back home. When someone stumbles, God's love continues to pursue them. God loved us by sending Jesus when all of us had rebelled against him. And that love continues even if we've wandered off, even if we have rejected him. Our God is a loving father, more loving than the most loving father you could ever imagine. And that love continues to pursue even those who have stumbled. 
So let's circle back to the question I posed at the beginning of this sermon. What does God want? Does God want our time? Does He want us in church every single Sunday and also on weeknights as needed? Does He want our money? Does He want us to be able to prove that we have tithes on everything that we have, even down to the very last cent? Does He want our behavior? Does He want us to be able to demonstrate that that over the last five years we've, we've grown in these areas and we're a much better person now than we were five years ago. Now, hear me, I don't have anything that's going to church or being generous or being a nice person. Those are all good things, but I think if our attitude towards being a Jesus people is that we've checked off those boxes, we've stopped short. Before God wants any of that, He wants you. The shepherd pursues the sheep that wanders away out of love. The shepherd is not okay with one of his sheep wandering off and being left to fend for themselves in the elements and with predators. And our God has the same heart for his people. That is why Jesus takes the time that he does in the ground we've covered in this chapter so far to deal with viewing one another as little ones within his kingdom and caring for one another and making sure no one's left to stumble and fend for themselves. It's because of the heart that our God has for His people and His desire that all people, no matter who they are, where they're from, what they look like, how much they made last year, can be a part of His people centered around Jesus. And if that's the attitude that our God has towards us and towards those around us who fit this description of a little one that has stumbled, that means that we too have been called to have that same heart for others. We've always said in this series that we should view one another as little ones, not having any concern for social status because before Jesus, none of us have anything we can hold up as deserving of anything to make us better than anyone else. We are all sinners who are lost and hopeless apart from Jesus. Therefore, we recognize that each of us are little ones in Jesus' kingdom and we treat one another accordingly. But what we see with this little parable is what that means for us. What, what, the, what links that Jesus has gone to when we were lost and wandering? He left the joy and the perfection of heaven to come to this earth and give his own life on the cross for us, bringing us back from wandering away so that we can be a part of his people. We have all, at some point or another, whether we recognized it in the moment or we only came to realize it later or we never did realize it, we have been the one sheep that wandered off that the shepherd pursued. And if that's the heart Jesus had for you and for me when we had wandered away, it's the heart we should take on as well. I don't know if a name or a face has come to mind for you this morning, but my guess is that if we took the time to think of it, each of us could come up with someone who fits the bill of what Jesus describes in this passage. Someone who was following Jesus and for whatever reason is not at this point. It might be a child, it might be a sibling, it might be a close friend, it might be someone else. And I'm not suggesting that you or I or anyone else can wave a magic wand and and it'll all be fixed. But what I do know, based on Jesus' words here, is that Jesus has not given up on them, and therefore we shouldn't either. The shepherd still pursues his sheep that have wandered away. The shepherd still celebrates when he is able to bring a sheep who has wandered away home. So if there's someone on your mind right now, know that God has not given up on them. 
God still wants them. Maybe God's pursuit of them involves you. Maybe it involves someone else. But regardless, God is not done with them yet. So don't give up hope. Don't give up praying for them. Don't give up looking for opportunities to show them the love of Jesus. Remind them that God loves them and that you do too, whether that's through words or actions or whatever it might be, because God still loves them and God still desires for them to be a part of his people. And if you are one of those people and you're listening to me right now, know that God wants you. Full stop. He's not after you because he needs people to tell him how great he is. He's not after you because he's mad at you. He's not after you because he needs something from you. You know, there are some relationships where uh, the other person only uh, gets in touch with you and needs something. We don't need to name names this morning, but I, I think most or all of us have experienced that. Someone who, you know, when their name pops up on your phone, you know, they might start by asking how you're doing and things like that, but they're only calling you because they need you to do something. And then there's other people in our lives who, when their name pops up on your phone, you know they don't need anything. They just want to hear your voice. They just want to talk. They just want to see how you're doing. And that's the heart of our God. God wants you. God created you. God loves you. God desires for you to be a part of his people. This has nothing to do with growing the numbers of Marion Road Christian Church. It has everything to do with making it clear beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Almighty God of the universe desires that every single person would be a part of his family. God does not want your money. He does not want your time. He does not want your stuff. He wants you. So come to him so that you can have life in him. At the beginning of this series, I I challenged all of us to take a a step closer to Jesus and his people over the course of this series. And I bring that up again, partly because it's the third week of this series, so my guess is that at least some of us have maybe forgotten about that. But also because when I invite you to move closer to Jesus and closer to his people... I'm inviting you closer to the Jesus that these verses describe. It is a Jesus that pursues those who stumble, those who wander away. And when I invite you to move closer to Jesus' people, I'm inviting you closer to a people that have been transformed by that sort of love and want to offer that same sort of love to others as well. And as a Jesus people, we have been called to have that same heart for those who have wandered away. The Jesus people is not a group of people sequestered away from the rest of the world, waiting for the rest of the world to, to get what it has coming to them. It is a group of people living in the world, not of the world, but in the world, as lights in the darkness, so that all people might know that God wants them. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the heart that you have for us. And when we were lost, when we were wandering, when we had had left the flock, you sent your Son to bring us back. That he paid the price of his life so that we might be brought back into relationship with you. And now he is risen from the dead. He's seated at your right hand and he has invited us in to extend the love that he has for the world to others as well. Father, transform us by this sort of love. And equip us to offer that sort of love to a world around us that is hurting. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French.